Welcome to Deep Pockets, the podcast for exploring how basic science, once created in a lab and funded by public means, is fueling the economy with completely new private industries. Deep Pockets is created by Petra Soderling. Distributed energy grids, consumer takes charge. Climate crisis and the war in Europe has made the role of energy, especially fossil fuels, an unprecedented strategic element, not just for energy needs, but as a geopolitical asset. My guest today is Rao Konidena, the founder of Racon Energy, LLC. Racon Energy helps consumer and industrial clients to discover cost-effective solutions in distributed energy resources and energy storage. Rao also helps their clients understand electricity policymaking and the U.S. energy markets. Before founding Racon, Rao was with MISO, that's the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, as a principal advisor for policy studies. He worked on resource, resource adequacy, economic planning, business management, and policy functions. Rao sits on the board of Evergreen Energy, a Minnesota-based utility system operator, and the Minnesota Solar Energy Industries Association. Welcome to Deep Pockets, Rao. Thanks, Petra. Before we go into talking about your current work, can you explain to our listeners what is the role of the independent system operator, the ISO, or in this case, the mid-continent ISO? Sure, Petra. So an independent system operator uh, for the transmission system is basically like an air traffic controller for air travel. Um, The air traffic controller for Minneapolis-St. Paul, MSP Airport, ensures planes operated by Delta, American Airlines, and others are taking off and landing safely at the MSP. Similarly, the independent system operator or the transmission system operator, as we call them TSO in Europe, ensure that generation supply can satisfy demand reliably, meaning reliability is a key here. Now, you might ask, given recent events in Texas in the 2021 winter, didn't ERCOT the air traffic controller for Texas operate the grid reliably? Well, yes and no, because first, ERCOT stands for Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Since the Texas interconnection grid is separate from the east and the west coast grids called interconnection, the Texas ERCOT grid issues are unique to Texas. Here is what happened in Texas. The generation froze due to the winter storm and was unable to meet the rising demand. And in my opinion, ERCOT is blamed for this. And I don't say that lightly, because guess what? There is another sheriff in Texas for natural gas, Texas Railroad Commission. That Railroad Commission is responsible for natural gas supply. And that's what froze in addition to wind and other supply resources. So back to my air traffic controller analogy, when the planes are sitting on the tarmac without being de-iced, there is nothing that the air traffic controller can do until crews come out and de-ice the planes because they are not safe to fly. 
Similarly, if the generation supply freezes, there is not much our grid operators can do, especially if those gas units don't come under their jurisdiction. Now, you might ask, what happens in the normal course of the life every day? How do electrons uh, move from generation to demand at home? Well, electrons basically take the path of least resistance. So when you switch on the light in your living room or turn on the toaster, somewhere on the grid, a generating unit is turned on and the electrons from that unit travel to a transformer where the voltage is stepped up because traveling at that low voltage leads to a lot of losses. Now, from that step-up transformer, the electrons are basically on the highway, the transmission system. And on and that transmission system is basically managed by the grid operators. The electrons are then stepped down at another transformer, again, from the transmission system. Hence, those transformers are really critical for our grid. If they catch fire, it's not a good thing. Once the voltage is back to the distribution level, meaning consumer level, whether it is a residential customer or a commercial or even industrial customers, because we each have our own needs, then at the substation, these electrons are now shipped to our homes via poles and wires we see uh, in our neighborhoods. And these poles and wires are buried underground in densely populated cities like New York City. Hence, it is a hassle when these underground stations are flooded if a hurricane comes along as it did with Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Now, you might ask, if we have grid operators for transmission, like MISO, do we have grid operators for the distribution system? Yes, we do. And they are called distribution utilities or the utility system operator in evergreen energies case. In Europe, these same operators are called distribution system operators or DSOs who manage the distribution grid like the air traffic controller, but for the distribution grid, not the transmission grid. There are over 800 uh, distribution operators in Germany, for example. Well, okay. Uh, thank you for that background explanation. We're now all on the same page uh, with how the grid works. Getting into your current role, can you tell us about the businesses you are consulting with, who they are and what they are trying to achieve and in uh, context of what you just laid down on how the grid works? Sure. So I mostly um, work with clients uh, who need my transmission expertise and energy market expertise. Um, as I, uh, as you had alluded to earlier, I worked for the uh, Midwest grid operator here for 15 years, and I'm comfortable basically with these grid operators elsewhere in the country uh, and the rules uh, surrounding transmission uh, infrastructure. So basically, my uh, current clients uh, are all basically doing something in the uh, clean energy space. For example, Advanced Energy Economy is advocating for distributed generation policies. Uh, Natural Resources Defense Council is advocating for uh, clean energy and distributed energy resources. Another client of mine, Vote Solar, is advocating for um, distributed solar in states like Nevada and Minnesota. Um, and I've also worked with consumer advocates to advocate for clean energy options to keep the costs lower for those consumers. Interesting. Thanks, Rao. Let's go uh, deeper into the topic now. Tell us, uh, I heard you wake up 3.30 a.m. every morning. So tell us what keeps you excited enough 
to be doing this. Sure, and and I did wake up at three thirty today, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and and I really like these early mornings because I'm really excited about aggregators and the companies that are providing these aggregation services because they basically take these small generation resources like rooftop solar and in aggregate allow them to bid into these markets like MISO and stuff. So what I'm basically trying to say is I'm excited about consumers taking charge of their electricity needs and becoming almost like a supplier because they can generate their solar energy. They can have their geothermal or they can have heat pumps. And when you combine all of them, it is powerful because solar energy may be available during the day and wind can, let's say, is available only during the night. But with the technology that is available today, these individual pieces of generating resources are flexible enough to be aggregated together and they work in tandem with the big transmission needs. And that's the flexibility that I'm talking about with these aggregators. So from a supply side, if we look on the demand side now in terms of different consumer needs, a residential consumer might have a peak demand during the evening time between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m when they are running microwave and oven for the food preparation. However, an industrial customer, on the other hand, might have a peak that is in the middle of the day when they are um, metal pressing uh, plants, for example, are being run. So different consumers of energy have different needs. And as a result, the flexibility on the demand side rests with which consumer segment we are talking about. So if you take a residential customer example, they would most likely be willing to reduce their demand consumption between uh, 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. if they had a way to see the wholesale energy price. And that's what demand response means in these markets. Demand response is a way to reduce energy consumption and you get paid the wholesale energy price for it. And federal regulations around this uh, have confirmed and affirmed that fact. Even Supreme Court of the United States has affirmed that the Federal Energy Commission has a jurisdiction over demand response programs that are compensated at a wholesale energy price. So if you take that step further, new rules are coming around on energy storage and distributed resources like rooftop solar that allow consumers to play a much bigger role on the transmission grid. And that's what excites me these days. That's why I wake up at 3.30. Mm-hmm. So demand response, it sounds to me like it's a win-win both for the providers, but also for the users, the consumers. That's right. That's right. You get paid to reduce your energy. Okay. Um, so that was the distribution model. Let's talk about resources. What do you want our audience to know about distributed energy resources? And what are some examples of these resources? Right. So distributed energy resources is a big term, is a big umbrella term. Uh, to include whatever generation is available at the consumer end, as I mentioned in the residential example. Because today's uh, residential uh, customers have solar. They put solar on their roof so that uh, that's a distributed energy resource. Or they can have a heat pump, and that's again a distributed resource. Or they can have Nest thermostat that regulates their air conditioner. Or they can have an air conditioner saver switch that can regulate how much demand their air conditioner puts on the grid. Or they can have a battery sitting in their home garage uh, like a Tesla power wall uh, that can be used to charge your electric vehicle. So these are all distributed energy resources. And when you take those resources in aggregate, 
my home battery with my neighbor's battery and so on. The combined neighborhood has all these batteries together and they become an aggregated distributed resource that can participate in these energy markets. The energy markets that I'm talking about uh, could be any of those uh, Northeast markets like PJM, New England, New York, or even mid-continent ISO where I worked for 15 years. Each of these markets have something called an energy market, a capacity market, and an ancillary services market, which basically means they provide a frequency response or a frequency regulation uh, ancillary services that are basically uh, providing uh, money for ramping capabilities that nuclear units cannot provide. Nuclear units cannot ramp up and down uh, like uh, natural gas generators can. So the energy regulations at the wholesale level compensate resources that can provide this ancillary service called frequency regulation. And what distributed energy resources can do is get compensated for providing the same service that traditionally generating resources can. And so that's what's going on in the marketplace today with the distributed energy resources. And you can take the example from California, for example, in the rooftop solar market. They're talking about net energy metering, a state rule that allows customers to benefit from excess energy that they sell back to the grid. That excess energy can also uh, remove the need, uh, perhaps for a big transmission line that the California independent system operator, CalISO, would probably need in the future. So these distributed resources can provide the reliability and resiliency benefit that we are starting to talk about because of climate change and and all the hurricanes and winter storms that we are uh, experiencing right now. So smaller resources can reduce the risk of a big capital asset like a coal or a natural gas plant hundreds of miles away from the load centers because there are smaller resources because these resources basically are generating where the demand is. So we need to realize that it made perfect sense 40 years ago, 20 years ago, to generate hundreds of miles away in alternating current AC, but transport that AC current to homes via big transmission lines. We might still need those transmission lines connecting New York City to San Francisco or the MSP metro area to the DFW metro area to reduce the risks of blackouts or even share excess renewable energy. But with today's technologies, while we plan for big transmission lines to interconnect the East and the West Coast, We should also realize that economies of scale have increased and technology costs have decreased for consumers to generate their electricity with the help of rooftop solar, batteries, geothermal, and heat pumps. Hence, we should embrace these distributed resources sooner than later. Thanks. So it's a more flexible, agile system. Exactly. In many ways. Uh, In my introduction, I did mention climate crisis, also Russia's aggression in Europe. Uh, In your view, why is connecting these distributed resources to the transmission grid needed now more than ever? It's an appropriate question, and I'm I'm glad you asked that, because as I was looking at the news um, this past week, or uh, I think it was last week, uh, Russia was uh, bombarding the nuclear plant uh, in Ukraine. I couldn't help uh, think um, if we if they had more distributed nuclear plants, if they had more distributed resources, the risk 
around only one unit going offline is de-risked by having multiple units. So because reliability and resiliency um, is what these uh, small resources can provide when they are aggregated. So we can all agree that small resources may not provide large grid needs, but when aggregated, these small resources can. You can bundle them as you bundle data and minutes in a smart cell phone package. You can have these aggregators as your representatives with the utility companies and the grid operators and provide energy services for the grid. Similar to a cell phone plan, it is likely that we will move to a transmission and distribution service model. They call this energy as a service, where the utility company owns the wires. However, there is a retail aggregator who will provide the energy to your house and power the devices in your house, which are from different vendors like Google Nest Thermostat, Tesla Powerwall battery. It could be a Ford F-150 electric car. So all these devices will talk to each other and uh, with a home energy management system. And that energy management system talks to the aggregator. And that and the aggregator then bids any excess energy onto the wholesale grid. Like my cell phone analogy, all the cell phones um, in the house have a common carrier and they interface with the, the internet carrier for smart capabilities. And additionally, the cell phone uh, cell phones also provide emergency services uh, when needed. So similarly, all this is possible. Um, and we know it is possible because there are states that allow large industrial customers and large commercial customers to bid into the energy markets to provide these services like Texas and New York. And uh, we know this works because customers benefit from reduced energy costs when participating in these wholesale markets. Hence, we need these distributed Um, resources in aggregate to reduce consumer costs. Now, what happens if if we don't? Because if we don't do it now, what happens when we plan for a big transmission lines in vacuum is without planning for distributed resources in aggregate is that the consumers would end up paying twice. They would have to pay for transmission cost and distribution system cost. If you plan for aggregated distributed resources like rooftop solar and batteries, and the transmission line development, then we may not have consumers. We, we may not have the consumers pay for high transmission costs and distribution wires charges, which are, which is what is going on in the industry today. Uh, I have a, a question on uh, safety and security. You uh, mentioned the possibility of someone bombing a nuclear plant, so that's obviously mm-hmm. a, a safety and security risk. Uh, we've also seen denial of service attacks and ransomware attacks into the energy grids. Do you feel this distributed aggregated model uh, could reduce those attacks or make it more difficult for the bad guys to attack our grids? Right. And, and uh, absolutely. I, I believe when you uh, spread the risk um, and have smaller resources um, and they are locally managed and dispatched, you have less risk on the bad guys taking down the entire grid. Because if you have a command and control of a uh, the single grid in one single utility's hands, it is basically putting all your eggs in one basket. Whereas if you have command and control spread over in local communities and local community grids, then it is less risky uh, to take down the entire grid. Are there any big tech companies on board with the distributed energy space? Absolutely, absolutely. There are a lot of companies uh, now in energy like Google, 
Apple, uh, Tesla, I mentioned uh, Tesla Powerwall, uh, Google Nest thermostat obviously comes to mind. Uh, Tesla actually has a lot of stationary storage projects uh, spread all over the country. So a lot of these uh, big technology companies are in this distributed energy space because technology is something that they do and distributed energy uses technology. So it's a win-win situation for them. Mm-hmm. And what are the use cases, some of the use cases for these big and small tech companies? So I already mentioned uh, rooftop solar, right? So if you think about the solar on your roof with a, a battery in your garage, um, you use that to charge your electric vehicle. Now think about optimizing uh, that when it is economical to sell that excess solar energy to the transmission grid versus when it makes sense for you to store that uh, solar energy. Um, we know that off-peak charging for electric vehicles makes more sense to the big grid, the transmission grid, because nuclear units cannot cycle. They cannot ramp up and down like diesel generator sets. They are steady resources. So the use case is for a consumer to buy this technology that optimizes them um, without uh, messing with switches every day. Um, and, And there are companies like STEM, for example, that are using artificial intelligence to make those decisions for the customers. Uh, because when a snowstorm moves in, uh, like I'm here in Minnesota, the consumer might want to store uh, their uh, solar energy in the battery and not use that up for EV charging. Uh, But if the weather is going to be sunny the next day, um, perhaps it makes sense for the customer to sell that excess energy uh, and make some money. Okay, um, thanks for that. Now, I understand it may be unfair to ask you this question, but as we record this, it's early uh, March 2022. Russia has attacked Ukraine and Europe is having to rethink their energy sources. Is the distributed grid system even uh, going to replace or ever going to replace larger infrastructure projects such as the just shelved Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline? Uh, Yes, it's a... uh key thing uh, and a sad thing actually that is happening uh, in the in the world today uh, i'm heartbroken to see uh, small kids eating uh, just an apple um, sitting in the subway uh, to like bomb shelters uh, in ukraine and i cannot uh, uh, think about all the hardships the parents and children are facing and most likely the students are missing out on schools and stuff too so i'm really heartbroken uh, on, on that uh, front. Um, now, it is definitely a difficult moment for Europeans in, in general because the entire world, including Europe, um, is dependent on fossil fuels. And as I mentioned, we have used, we have been using energy um, by generating it over long distances. Uh, and only some of the countries are lucky to have a diversity of uh, renewable resources to complement uh, their existing fleet. So it is good that Europe and U.S. are thinking about how to reduce uh, dependency on fossil fuels. And uh, there is obviously an undeniable political aspect uh, that comes along with it. And I know uh, governments, including uh, U.S. here, are um, looking at infrastructure plans, uh, build back better and such, and ensuring that um, we not only have offshore wind uh, uh, incentivized and take off, uh, but also perhaps have offshore uh, oil drilling platforms uh, you know that could be replaced with offshore wind turbines for example so governments could obviously do more uh, in uh, infrastructure packages and such 
But I also think um, from a distributed uh, generation and distributed grid uh, perspective, uh, we should have uh, some incentives for the utilities to do more uh, distributed generation uh, so that they can keep uh, their existing customers. Um, so perhaps uh, we should incentivize uh, not only the utilities to work with the distributed energy uh, resource providers, but also have a robust mechanism for the uh, distributed energy uh, providers uh, who are like uh, rooftop solars and other uh, providers have a say in the ecosystem. Yeah, and the Supreme Court decision that you talked about earlier certainly helps in this case, right? The, absolutely. I, th- I think uh, when I uh, reflect upon uh, the latest uh, uh, announcement by uh, President Biden uh, nominee uh, Jen Jackson and uh, just think about why do I follow uh, Supreme Court nominations and Supreme Court judges? I realize that particular Supreme Court case on demand response compensation was a key in establishing that uh, this federal agency called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, has a, has to say uh, in um, compensating for uh, um, wholesale transactions, including demand response. So we have uh, at least uh, certainty from the Supreme Court level on some of these um, incentives uh, for distributed generation, like demand response and distributed energy uh, resources that we talked about. Absolutely. Good. So there's a little bit of carrot there, not just stick. <laughs> so thanks for our, uh, some good and solid thinking here uh, today. Finally, to end on a, on a more happy note, tell us one thing that most people don't know about you. <laughs> okay. So... Um, Yes, I, I do uh, watch a lot of uh, crime shows, uh, such as Wallander. Uh, I even like Junior Wallander mm-hmm. and then Criminal Minds. And I read a lot of fictional books. So that's how I keep uh, myself uh, entertained, if you will. Um, in fact, talking about books, my current favorite authors, authors are Preston and Child, um, uh, two guys. And, and I like how they develop the character of this uh, FBI special agent, uh, Pendergast. Uh, the reason I like him uh, <laughs> is because he's able to work independently without any interference from the institutional FBI. So okay. th- there's probably something there that I appeals to me. That's a very fitting plot, an independent special FBI agent that works off the grid and distributed model, if we could say. Uh, Rao Konidena, thank you so much for coming to Deep Pockets today. Thank you, Petra. The pleasure was mine. You've listened to Deep Pockets by Petra Soderling. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes.